All right. Uh, why don't we jump in? You guys have your Bibles. Turn to Hebrews chapter 12. If you don't have a Bible, we'd love to loan you one. You know the routine. Just uh, wave your hand at Genoa and he'll get you one. We're just moving right along and we're in the next section of verses. So we're going to be looking at verse 12 through 17 this morning. I entitled our message, You Got This. Hebrews 12, starting at verse 12 through 17. All right, thank you, Genoa. All right, you guys, why don't you stand with me, please, and I'll read these verses, and we'll, uh, we'll unpack them together. The writer, continuing his thought and his words of encouragement and exhortation to these Hebrew Christians, he says, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame it may not be dislocated, but rather be healed. And he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. And then he says, looking carefully, and there's these warnings he gives, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and then by this many have become defiled. He says, lest there be any fornicator or profane person And the author reaches back into the Old Testament, and he mentions Esau, Jacob's brother. He says, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, and you know that afterward when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he didn't. He was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. All right, we're going to pause there and let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. Lord, our hearts and minds, um, Lord, go outside of these four walls and we pray for the nation of Ukraine, for the people there, for many who have uh, gathered away from home, who have fled their home in fear and worry of all that's happening. Uh, Father, we know that you're sovereign Lord, that you allow these things to happen, that, God, you have uh, history, Lord, already planned out and what you want to do. And, Lord, even as we look to Scripture to give us um, some guidance and and handles as to what's going on, we, we realize, Lord, as we see these wars and rumors of wars and all that's happening, that it's a reminder, these birth pangs of the promise that you've given Jesus, you're coming back soon. And so, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't, our faith wouldn't grow faint, uh, but, Lord, that we would uh, be wise to discern the times and that we would look up and know that our redemption draws near. Father, for those that are in harm's way, we pray that you would protect them and be with them, comfort them. Lord, use this as a means to bring salvation to a people group. Lord, we pray for government leaders who are making decisions in response to what's happening. Lord, that you might grant them wisdom. And Lord, we pray for peace. Ultimately, we pray for peace. And so, Father, we commit these things to you. And Lord, as we study the word um, here in Okinawa and this time, we pray that you'd speak to our hearts. Lord, that we might run our race well and with endurance and perseverance and keeping our eyes upon the prize. So we give you our morning. We ask and pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, would you take a moment and say hello to someone, and then you may have a seat.
So you might recall chapter 12 opened with this exhortation uh, to the Hebrew Christians, of course, for us as we read it, to run. And the author, as we've mentioned, was using a metaphor of running a race to describe the Christian life. And we talked about how uh, it's not a sprint, but it's a marathon. We're in it for the long haul. And that this race of faith, it includes uh, difficulties. The path isn't always smooth. Uh, it includes disciplines for ourselves to practice and even God who disciplines us. We talked about how running well means running free of distractions or to lay aside the weights and the sins that so easily ensnare us, the author tells us. Running well means that we realize uh, God's given all of us a particular lane. We have a place in which we run and, and a pace, and it's going to look different than the people sitting next to us or behind us. And, and really for us, it's just to be faithful to the place that God has given us. And then running well means for all of us that we keep our focus on the Lord and to know that He is... Uh, our example, but he's also our enabler, that he's the one who has promised to carry us to the finish line, and we need to keep our focus on the Lord. Now we, we come here in verse 12, and the writer returns to the, the metaphor of running a race, and, and to me, as I read it, I, I, you know, I likened it to a coach, like a track coach, who shouting from the sidelines, basically, you got this. Uh, keep on keeping on. Just, you know, keep running. And, um, you know, good coaches are ones who uh, pat us on the back, but also kick us in the pants when needed. And, um, you know, and, and more and more we find coaches in different areas of our life that kind of serve that purpose. You, uh, I think especially in this last decade or so, you hear about not only coaches for sports, and it's been around for a long time, but then you have fitness coaches or fitness trainers, and you have business coaches and academic coaches and performance coaches, and, and for some of us, we even have health coaches. You know, as Christians, we too have a, a coach, if you will. We have a spiritual coach and, uh, and exists in the person of the Holy Spirit who leads us in God's truth, who reminds us of what Jesus has said of the gospel, who God uh, sends forth in our lives and our hearts who comforts and also convicts us, who, who pats us on the back and, yes, at times kick us, kicks us in the pants as we need it. And, and so coaches in general are a good thing, be a great benefit for our support and our success. And uh, as we come to this section, I, I, I liken the, the author of Hebrews like a coach, like a running coach, a spiritual running coach with words of encouragement and also words of caution. And he's shouting out from the sidelines, if you will, hey, you got this uh, as we are running our race of faith. And so if we want to do well, I suggest that for all of us, we would, we, we would uh, be wise for us to hear and to heed these words that are written for us and maybe you've already noticed, it's very applicational. Uh, there are five things that I'll note together. They're directives, if you will. They're, 
They're, they're commandments. They're not even um, suggestions. These are things that the writer is telling us to do. And along with that, paired with the five directives, are also five dangers that he notes. And so we will note them together, and hopefully we can apply these things to our lives today as we follow the Lord. So I draw your attention back to verse 12 as we do. Uh, we read, we jump in, Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. As we rejoin the author's thought, we begin here at therefore, and we, every time we've come to this word, I think we've paused. It's a connected word. We want to note what, what's been you know, discussed here. And as a transition word, as a connecting word, it connects us back to uh, what the writer has just been talking about. And it connects then what our response should be. What do we do in light of what has just been written? In light of the fact that, that uh, the Hebrew Christians and we too today, as we live for Jesus, as we desire to follow the Lord and live in faith, realize it's not always easy. Uh, there's no promise that being a Christian is all of a sudden going to become an easy life with no problems. Uh, we talked about actually quite the opposite. We need to anticipate that we're going to have some difficulties. Not everybody's going to like our decisions or our choice to follow the Lord. And that we can experience some tough times and some rough roads on this walk of faith, this running our race. And, and included in that is sometimes where even God brings those things to us, spiritual spankings as we talked about last week, because he loves us and he, and he uses that at times to correct us or redirect us, we're getting off track. And so the writers talked about all these things, and now he says, therefore, in light of what we've just heard, in light of the fact that we're running this race, and it can be hard at times, what do we do? Well, strengthen the hands which hang down in the feeble knees. The author returns to the imagery of a runner. and In my mind's eye, I imagine a long-distance runner, a marathon runner. In fact, he incorporates an Old Testament passage from Isaiah 35, this imagery of a, of a wearied runner who's going low on energy, you know, who maybe began the race excited and pumped up and, you know, and hands are uh, strong and knees are strong and legs are strong, and, uh, and yet by the end of that race, the signs of fatigue and the signs of being weary are starting to manifest with the, the, you know, the arms are heavy and they kind of hang down and, and, and the gait's not the same, right? And perhaps for some, they're not even running anymore. It's just more of like the zombie walk that they're, you know, trying to get to the end of the line. Now, I, I never experienced that personally, just seen it, you know, on TV. <laughs> maybe you have too, or maybe some of you, I know you're runners, you guys said that you were, of you've experienced that. You know, towards the end of the race, and you're almost there, and you got you know very little left in your in your gas tank, so to speak, and your arms are down, and your legs are wobbly. Um, I was trying to think like, have I ever experienced that? And I remember, yeah, yeah, I did uh, many, many, many years ago <laughs> when I was in high school uh, at Kadena High. They used to have this thing called the Panther Run. Uh, and, and basically it was an all-night relay marathon where uh, Kadena and Kubasaki, some of the Japanese schools, and even some of the units 
basically would camp out on the track field, and then they would run all night and have this relay run. And, and, uh, and I uh, foolishly said, oh, yeah, I'll be part of that. And I remember <laughs> my leg and just, you know, barely able to make it. So I do have a faint memory of that. But that's the descriptor that the, the writer is incorporating here now. It's the imagery of this, of this marathon runner that's just got nothing. The knees are wobbly and the hands are heavy. But notice the imperative. What's the directive? The exhortation is very straightforward. He says, strengthen. Strengthen the hands which hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. So for our time this morning, if you're a note taker, I just wrote it this way. Simply stay strong. Our, our coach, if you will, uh, is calling out from the sidelines and just saying, hey, you got this. Hang in there. In, in Japanese, we'd say, gambare. Uh, in several translations, th- this verse might read in your Bible where it says, strengthen your feeble arms or lift your drooping hands. And to read that way, the emphasis seems to be placed upon the idea that we are to strengthen ourselves when we are feeling fatigued, when we're uh, getting weary and weak. In many ways, the writer is just telling us like it is. Gang, there's going to be times in our life when trials and troubles when life gets rough and it's going to take the wind out of you, it's going to hit you hard. And the writer is saying, listen, when that happens, don't fold. Don't quit. You're going to get knocked down, but get up again. That in the Lord and by His Spirit, we, we don't have to allow the circumstances to to overwhelm us to the point where we're like, you know what, I'm just done. Or to overcome us where, where you say, I'm going to just quit this. I'm going to drop out of this race. Because the reality is our faith will be tested. The Bible tells us plainly it's going to be tested. and it's going to, We're going to have fiery trials. And we are going to be tempted to say, you know what, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, that's what was happening with the Hebrew believers. But when that happens to you, the question you have to answer is, what will you do? And it seems more and more these days in our culture that there's this, at least by my observation, maybe you would see it differently, but a a growing group of people who want to be coddled in their emotional immaturity. They don't have the intellectual, I'll call it strength or stamina, to properly handle when someone disagrees with them. Or they don't have the tools on how to respond when life doesn't go their way. And, and sadly, what we're seeing, in, and I think, you know, is society as a whole acquiesce to this growing group that's, that's easily offended that seems to be overly emotional, I would add highly entitled, and again, just ill-equipped to deal with life's difficulties and disagreements. 
the, the author is telling us in a loving and yet very firm way, it's the spiritual equivalent of him saying to us, hey, life is hard, and at times you need to suck it up, buttercup. Now the asterisk, though, for us is in the Lord. Right? We've talked before, anytime that we come to these these imperatives that we read, it's easy for us just to default and think, okay, i got to do this in my strength and pull myself up. And No, that's why he spent, you know, I would say 11 chapters describing what Christ has done for us and who we are in the Lord and where our strength comes from and the fact that Jesus is the author and the finisher of our faith. We can't disconnect those two things even though we come to a, a section that's very applicational. And I, and I would suggest that part of our spiritual growth, an important part of our spiritual growth and maturity, is to learn how you and how I can find strength in the Lord for ourselves. So what does it mean to strengthen ourselves in the Lord? There's this interesting story in the Old Testament in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And I encourage you maybe to note that and you can go back and reread the entirety of it. I'll just kind of give you the Rick paraphrase, uh, so bear with me. King David and his men uh, are camped in this place called Ziklag. And they're there with their wives and their kids, all their stuff. And, and David and his men have gone out to battle, and it's a weird time in the history of Israel. David's not on the throne, and there's even a, an incident where he's acting crazy with the Philistines. And, and so he's trying to, in one sense, get in with them, although he's really not. He's kind of playing double agent. But as they're away from camp at this time, what happens is another enemy nation, the Amalekites, come in. And when the Amalekites come in, they steal, they kidnap all of the wives and all of the kids. They steal all of the stuff. And then they burn down David's camp. And they take the wives and the kids captive and they then move. Now when David and his men come back and they find the camp on fire, their family's gone, all their stuff is gone, uh, they are distraught. And the men who are with them, in their frustration and sadness, it turns to anger, and they direct their anger at David. And, and 1 Samuel 30, verse 6 says that David was greatly distressed because the guys had decided, we're going to kill him. And so they wanted to kill David. And so David is distressed, that's what's happened. I mean, you know, on top of his own family being taken and everybody else's and all his stuff, now he, a group of men who just moments earlier loved him and trust him now turning on him. And it says everyone was bitter in spirit because of what has happened. But the rest of that verse says, but David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. What does that look like to do that? It's not just David. 
make your way fast forward to the New Testament and a very interesting thing that happened with Paul the Apostle. I mean, the guy that God used to plant so many churches, and we'd say, man, had great community and discipled many, and yet towards the end of his life when he's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, in verse 16 and 17, he's talking about his circumstances, and he says, you know, when I went to court at my defense, he says this, nobody stood with me. Nobody came to help me, to be with me. He says, they all, my paraphrase, bailed on me. They all jonesed on me. They left me. He says, but the Lord stood by my side and God gave me strength. Church family, I, this is a spiritual discipline I, I think that we need to cultivate to learn to find our strength in the Lord and to find our strength in the Lord alone. When it seems that no one, when there's no one to call in the moment, listen, God is always available. And, and, and you will experience, and maybe you have, right, where you've tried it, you've depended upon someone, and yet for whatever reason, they didn't come through. Whether it was a legitimate reason, or maybe they themselves were selfish or whatever. And you feel failed by them. Understand that the Lord promises they'll never leave you or forsake you. That God promises that he will always be there. And it's a good discipline for us to learn to strengthen ourselves in the grace of the Lord, in the promises of the Lord. And dare I say that sometimes we can be too dependent upon another person for our spiritual strength. That we can be too dependent upon another person for our walk and our encouragement. King, I, I, I have found, and again, maybe you have too, that Jesus is a faithful counselor. That he knows exactly what we need and what we need to hear. He is a loving listener. He doesn't pick up his cell phone in mid-conversation. You don't have to wait till the morning or the right time zone to call upon him. Or when he's free from another appointment. The Bible, I mean, even Hebrews, we've already been um, reminded of this tremendous privilege that you and I can come boldly into his throne room, uh, a place of grace to find our mercy and find help any time that we need. Now, having said that, this verse can be instructional for the individual that we that we are to strengthen our hands and our knees, make our paths straight, Ooh, excuse me. But also it's, it's application for all of us, not just individually, but also corporately. There is a sense then where we, you know, this, this tension or this dichotomy of, yes, we need to learn to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, and yet at the same time God places us in community that we would spur each other on and, and lift each other's burdens. 
encourage one another and pray for one another. And that while we have our own place and pace in which we run, while we have our lane and the course that God has set for us, we don't run alone. We talked before, we're not in competition with each other. Not as times where we can spur each other, encourage each other. But we're in community. And God wants us to be committed in our care and invested in our, in our concern for one another. Church isn't, church, maybe I should say it this way, church shouldn't be just an event where, where you or I come and we're just consumers of content. And one of the dangers, uh, one of the dangers of social media, one of the dangers of technology is it's easy for us just to be consumers of content without connection, without community, without real involvement of, of life. And sometimes that bleeds over when we come into then in-person services. You know, when we come here and if you if you view church as just an event where you're gonna come and you're gonna just be a spectator. I'll say this in love, you will miss, you will cheat yourself out of a great blessing that God wants for you. Now listen, I get it, right? Church, church is made of a people, and people can be messy. And so is church messy sometimes? Yes. Are we uh, perfect? No. We have our own quirkiness and idiosyncrasies and weird things, yes, we do. And guess what? There's times where we rub each other wrong and we can say stupid things and we can offend each other. And Yeah, that happens. But it's also the place where we learn forgiveness, exercise grace, be challenged in some of our thoughts. It's the place that we then face-to-face and shoulder-to-shoulder, we, we spur each other on. We encourage each other. The Bible says, you know, that we do that onto good works. And we, again, we, this is something we talked about in Hebrews, right? To spur each other on to love and good deeds. It's harder to do when you're sitting behind a monitor screen. That's your, you know, sole experience, or you're just watching worship on a smartphone. I get it, you know, especially now, COVID and ROM and deployments and traveling and we, we, we live stream, we have these things, and maybe you're watching this morning, I, I would say, like, we want to make sure that, that that's complementary, you know, it's, that it doesn't replace, it doesn't become the default of our, of our worship life. And so in some ways, the writer of Hebrews not only is saying, do we have a, an individual responsibility to learn what it means to strengthen ourselves in the Lord, but also we have a corporate responsibility help encourage each other. And we find the same thing in the Old Testament, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're told that two are better than one. We have a greater return for our labor, partnerships. If one falls down, there's another person to help pick them up, encourage them. 
source of strength and a source of warmth and a source of, of companionship. So God has given us really this gift, wonderful, messy, real, raw, this thing called the church. And we will, we will thrive. We together will do well and do our best when we're willing to be committed in community to each other. And I, you know, for me, that's, I'm so grateful for that. So grateful for you guys and the times that, you know, you've encouraged me. Recently, some of you guys know I still haven't been feeling well, and just uh, sometimes it's a little text or a funny picture or just how you're doing. Getting together, we, we've been given responsibility. And it's a blessed one, you know, to help where we can and appropriately strengthen each other's hands and knees and help people walk when they're weak. And so here this, our spiritual coach, if you will, calling out from the sidelines, hey, Gambare, you got this. Strengthen yourself in the Lord. Keep on keeping on. And then he adds in verse 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather healed. And so the first thing we're directed to do is just stay strong. The second thing we're directed to do is, I worded it this way, keep, keep on course. Stay straight. Stay strong, stay straight. Keep on course. And again, it's the imagery of of a person who's running this race and they're staggering and all of a sudden now they've become distracted and they begin to wander off course. Whether uh, incidentally because they've just been distracted or they're doing it deliberately. Again, the writer is pulling imagery from the Old Testament, Proverbs 4, basically paraphrasing what the writer of Proverbs says about making straight paths. And we've talked before about the importance of, of keeping our focus on the Lord. This path that God places you on as we're following Him and we walk in His ways and when we walk in His ways according to His will, we experience then, if you will, the maximum blessings in our life. Now, is it... Uh, problem-free? No, I just said that, right? It's not. There's going to be hills and valleys and dark days and tough times and bumps, and yet, um, you know, as the song goes, all the way my Savior leads me. But if we veer off course, if we start down a different road, we will only be inviting increasing difficulties in our lives and in our marriages, in our families, in our careers, in our walk. And often that spills out to others. When you are off course, it becomes very evident. And so what becomes lame then? What's the idea that, you know, uh, that what is lame may not be dislocated? That word lame, it means weak, it means without girding. If you and I start to get off track, we experience troubles and trials and what 
and what causes us then, uh, or if that causes us then to run to other things. We want to escape or hide or dull our pain or find resolve or comfort from a bottle or spending or eating or gaming or whatever. The writer saying, listen, you're not going to find the healing that you're looking for. You're not going to find the contentment in your soul. You're not going to find whatever void that's going on that you're trying to fill. It's not going to happen. You're going to dislodge yourself. You're going to dislocate yourself further from the true source of comfort and contentment that you're seeking. That, that, the idea of being dislocated is being at a socket. I mean, it's the, it's the physical equivalent of, you know, if you dislocated your shoulder or finger. Has that ever happened to you? It's not pleasant, right? It's painful when it happens, and it's painful when you put it back into place. But when it's out of place, it doesn't function right. It hurts. You've lost mobility. Right? You are uh, inhibited. You can't function as you know, you're supposed to. That's the same idea spiritually. If you and I start going off course, it hurts. We don't have the, the spiritual strength that God wants us to have that we need. and In fact, it just makes matters worse. And so here the writer is exhorting us. In one sense, not only be level-headed, but be level-footed. And how do we do that? Well, the Bible says that God's Word is a lamp and a light to our feet and our path. It's God's Word that shows us the path to take. As we've talked before, though it's not in this particular context, we can understand that's What's assumed in that is that we're relying upon the strength of the Spirit. This is not a pull yourself up and you know, your own strength. It is a dependence upon the Spirit. But as we do that, we can stay strong and, and keep the course. And so he moves on, verse 14. He says, pursue peace with all people and holiness. And he adds this interesting qualifier that without it, no one will see the Lord. And so again, you, you, you notice the indicative there, or the, excuse me, the imperative. Strengthen, make straight, pursue. And so number three, I just put those together. It's pursue peace and holiness. It's a pursuit of both of those things. And pursue means uh, it's a, a passionate pursuit. It's a, a determined pursuit. It's something that you're you're committed to, you're, you're in it to win it. It's not a casual, it's not an occasional consideration. It is, uh, it's a determination and it's a direction. It's like, I'm going to do this. I have attention to it and I have intention to it. That's the idea of that word. And so it means that we should hold this as a priority in our relationships with others with ourselves. Some translations, maybe your Bible reads, make every effort. Make every effort. 
You know, when I read that, how I interpret and apply this in my life, it's the idea of, of keep accounts short. Keep accounts short with others. To pursue peace with everyone it means I, I try not to let anything build up. I got an issue, there's a concern, there's a question, there's a beef, there's, I, the air feels weird, there's some kind of weird tension. I, it bothers me, and so I will just address it right away. Hey, you got, a, you got an issue? Did I say something? Did I do something? Because I know I can be stupid. I can say dumb things. I don't want to be so prideful that I don't apologize for being rude or neglecting or insulting or whatever. You know, it, it means taking it to the Lord, but also then taking it to the person directly. And I have found that, man, it has been such a, a, a helpful and healthy and very freeing practice for me. But, you know, there are people, and you, you know them, I know them, right? They, they love drama. They love chaos. And, and they leverage it as a means of attention for them. They just live in it. And they thrive, you know, they, 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 they find life in it. And yet, it's negative attention. And if you know people, as I know people like that, right, it, it's, it's draining energy. It sucks life and energy from other people, and sometimes it becomes just this vortex of, of toxicity. And they just want to stay there in their misery. And so sometimes the path to peace is you being wise and keeping distance. It's you saying, ah, I, have, I have loving limits for the sake of my own peace and my own sanity. I mean, even the Lord, we read at times where, you know, he goes into the upper room and there's all these mockers and scoffers. He's going to heal the little girl and, and we read that he puts them out. Puts distance between the scoffers and the mockers and himself. And sometimes we need to do that in our life. For the sake of peace, you've got to put the mockers out. And yet God is a realist, isn't he? In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, Paul writes, he says, If it's possible, and I love these qualifiers, if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you, live at peace with everyone. And I appreciate that. But he leads with, if it's possible, because the idea is sometimes it's not. <laughs> it's not. You want peace. You want truth. You're, you're trying to make amends. And yet the other person doesn't want that. What do you do? Just, you, you have to commit them to the Lord. You've pursued and you've tried and you've texted, you've emailed, you've called but they want to harbor anger, they want to harbor bitterness, they want to harbor, you know, unforgiveness. Yet, listen, there are times where, you, for the sake of peace, you just, you got to commit them to the Lord. But we also have to be sure, because the next part of that is, as if it's possible, as far as it depends upon you. So there's times where you got to make sure, listen, have I really done all that I could do? 
Or am I the one that's embittered? Am I the one that's angry? Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. And it's the idea of pursuing peace and our own relationship with the Lord and enjoying the fullness of that relationship with the Lord. And, and I found it very freeing. But realize that God, care, you know, God cares about how we get along. I think one of the things that can upset me the most as a parent is when my kids are fighting. And when they start going at each other, oh man, it, it, I don't like it. And so I'll tell them, like, knock it off. And it's one thing if they're just clowning around and it's horseplay and, <clears throat> you know, I got three boys and some of them are like, all right, hey, boys will be boys. And even Becca sometimes, she, when they were younger, she'd get in the mix of it. Oh, sorry, it's not my note. She was the practical joker. I wouldn't recommend this, but well, we have a couple of kids. So just for the... She, she um, we still had some, um, is it Ambisol? What's the stuff that helps baby, babies teething? Is it Ambisol? You know, it's teeth numbing stuff. Well, we saw a tube left over when the kids were younger. She found it and she put it on the boy's toothbrush. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. All right, hey. But when they're like at each other and they're being mean like that, I'm like, hey, like it upsets me. You know, likewise, uh, you know, God cares about how we get along. And I would say this, even beyond us as believers, certainly how we get along is the family of Christ, but, but guess what? God, you know, the Bible says God so loved the world. And so we're talking about the non-believer too, that we who have, know the peace of God and have peace with God, we're charged now to pursue peace with each other primarily, but guess what? Even beyond the family of Christ, with others. Because you notice the rest of that verse, it says that without it, no one sees the Lord. And so sometimes it means we take the high road and we forgive them. Sometimes it means we're the one that says sorry first. And yes, sometimes it does mean you put distance between you and the drama. It becomes a testimony. So along with pursuing peace, there's also the pursuit of holiness. And we might even say that pursuing peace in one sense is our relationship with others and pursuing holiness is primarily our relationship with the Lord. That those things happen in tandem together. Are, we, are you pursuing holiness? Are you actively pursuing holiness? Last week we talked about this word and it means just to be set apart. And again, it's this interesting dichotomy because there's this part where God separates us, right? God is the one in Jesus Christ when we come to faith that we have been sanctified, we have been justified. God then places his spirit inside of you and we've been rescued out of darkness and brought into his kingdom of light. And so in one sense... We've been uh, made holy because of what Christ has done for us. That is true. And yet along with that, here we find we're to pursue holiness. And so those things work in cooperation. What, 
what God has declared true of us, we still then pursue. And the Bible says it this way, that, that we then work out what God has placed in, right? The, the good works that God has laid before him, that we then should walk in them. That we're not veering off track. That we're pursuing holiness in our life. Wanting to live right before the Lord. Wanting to live above board. Wanting to live a life of purity. As the saying goes, no one drifts into holiness. There's a part where we have to determine. We say, okay, Lord, this is what you want for me and this is what I want for me. And, and gang, it, it becomes very powerful for yourself and your own walk, but also as a witness. The Bible says that the righteous are as bold as lions. And, and I have found there in my own life, that when, when I have kept my account short with people and certainly with the Lord, and by no means, you guys know me, I'm not perfect, but when, when my life is free from any hidden sin and I'm not doing or looking at things that I shouldn't be or involved in things that I shouldn't be, that there's this, there's this humbled um, boldness, and I'd call a sanctified confidence that I can stand before you. Well, primarily I can stand before the Lord, I can stand before my wife and look my wife in the eye and look my kids in their eyes and say, hey, I, I, I'm free from any hidden sin. And, and to have, if you will, a, a sanctified confidence, like I'm walking in integrity. You're not going to read tomorrow, or, oh, Pastor Rick was, had this dual life, or, or, you know, he's doing these things. And, and in that, there's such a freedom. There's such a great freedom. You know, sometimes people are like, oh, aren't you worried? You know, you talk about, like, cybersecurity and these things, and, you know, my phone, I'm like, ah, I'm not worried. You know, sometimes you get those emails, like, you know, it's, was it called? Spamming or phishing, right? Oh, I saw what you did. There's a video of you doing this bad thing, and you better send me this cryptocurrency, or I'm going to post everyone. And I'm like, that's so stupid. I'm like, I, I have no, I am, I'm not afraid of any of that, because I'm not doing anything. Plus, I don't have any cryptocurrency, like, you know. Or people are like, hey, aren't you afraid? I'm like, no, I'm not afraid, especially even of hacking. Like, they're not going to find anything. I, go for it. There's such a freedom in that. And I, I often say, like, if, if someone was savvy enough to hack my phone and my bank account, they'd probably put, put money in it to see, look how this poor guy, you know. <laughs> you can please understand, not, not that I'm perfect. But man, I, I have come to value the pursuit of holiness. To realize it's not legalism. It's liberating. And when we are those who then pursue peace and we pursue holiness, guess what? It makes an impact to the people around us as we love God and we love others. And then people see your life. And they see that in you. And here the writer says, and they see the Lord. But if they see Christians who are unforgiving, 
and complaining and fighting and nitpicking, especially over trivial and worldly things, when we as believers begin to act like the world or even say worse than the world, living in sin, making excuse, what of that makes Christ attractive? I would say to you, nothing. Christ doesn't become attractive. Our life doesn't become attractive. They don't see the Lord. And so here's what the writer is telling us. If we pursue peace, pursue holiness, impacts your own walk and, and your witness. Verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up causes trouble and by this defile, or many become defiled. He, here we, we transition where he continues to give us these directives, but he adds in these warnings, it's dangers that he's listing here. Lest this happen, lest this happen, lest this happen. So very simply, number four, I just rephrase this as basically lifeguard yourself. That phrase, looking carefully, in your Bible, it might read, see to it. It's a phrase he uses over and over. And again, there's this idea of dual personal responsibility. We were to watch over our own life, but also be you know, concerned about others. But that word for looking, or that word for the whole phrase, see to it, it's the Greek word, um, episkopos, episkopos. It's a compound word. It's made of two Greek words, epi meaning above and skopos meaning scope. In fact, that word is often translated as elder or shepherd or the English word, the Episcopalian church. It's, that's the same term. It's overseer. It's overwatcher. It's like the lifeguard who's, you know, watching. That's the idea. And so he incorporates this word, and, you know, and part of uh, my charge as a pastor is to overlook God's flock. Part of my responsibility is to give careful attention to the flock of God and to pray for you and to be concerned for you and to feed you well and to love you well. And yet the same word is to be applied to yourself. It's the idea of pastor yourself. <laughs> to look carefully. Notice it says, lest anyone. And so that includes yourself, but also the person next to you. Right? The lifeguard is primarily concerned not with themselves, but with the people that they are responsible for, right, in their circle. I don't have to tell you, right? The world loves factions and tribalism. The world loves to divide people, including us, on so many different lines. Political lines, uh, socioeconomic lines, educational lines, monetary lines, right? Racial, ethnic, you name it. Any, any kind of line, outward line that they can find, it wants, you know, it's to be exploited. 
And, and, and yet, while there are distinctions between Christians and non-Christians, gang, we are not at war with people. And I realize sometimes we can even talk about like the us-them mentality. When we talk about the world, we're talking about the world system. But when we talk about people, we're not at war with people. We're, we want to win people. We want to win them to Christ. We want to win them to faith. And the most effective method to do that is, is genuine love in the gospel that Jesus himself exemplified for us, that God so loved the world, the sinful people of the world, who you and I were once part, who we once who were people that far off didn't want anything to do with God, that God demonstrated his love while we were yet sinners, sent Christ to be born and to live and to die for you and for me, so that we who were once far off can be brought near. And so there's a sense in which we are to look carefully at others, but also ourselves, to see if our, our own hearts, if we're really of the faith, the Bible says. Because the Bible tells us that there's this real possibility that we can be hearers of God's word and yet not do them. We can, we can hear the scriptures and yet not heed the scriptures. We can come to church and appreciate, you know, what what happens, we can have an outward respect for Christ and for Christians, for what the church does uh, socially or humanitarily or, you know, within a community, and yet it stops there. It just stops, uh, you know, at appreciation. And yet there's no real change. We, we haven't been apprehended by the Spirit of the Lord. It's just courtesy. And there are those who come to church like it's a TED Talk. Like, that was interesting. People are nice enough. But there's no transformation. Listen, look carefully. Lifeguard yourself. Take inventory. Lest what? Lest, lest anyone, including yourself, fall short of the grace of God that you or anyone would come so close to the cross and yet miss it. What a travesty. You know, Jesus gave this parable about this farmer that went to sow some seeds. And, and in this parable, this story talks about four different types of soil. And the disciples, when they first heard it, didn't quite track. And so they're like, can you explain that to us? He's like, yeah, sure. The seed is the gospel. And the soils, they represent the condition of a person's heart. And he goes on to explain how the gospel goes forth and the love of God goes forth, and yet it's the person's heart becomes the determiner whether that finds root and bears fruit. There's a hard heart, there's a shallow heart, and there's a heart that's just choked out by the cares of the world. It, it, it's, it's those who have fall short of the grace of God. One heart is you hear the word, you're excited, but as soon as trouble comes, you bail. Another heart is you hear the word, and yet there's concerns in your life, and you're drowning in your own stuff. You fall short of the grace of God. And yet the fourth soil was good soil. 
where the seed fell, it stuck, and it grew, and there's evidence of faith. I mean, this is what we should want for ourselves and want for others. And so notice it's a strong caution of what could happen if we're not carefully looking. It includes then falling short of God's grace. It includes then becoming embittered. Become embittered at God and become embittered at others. You know what often happens when grace is missing? Bitterness takes its place. I mean, I got to run faster. I mean, <laughs> verse 16 and 17, we'll do these together. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for the morsel of food sold his birthright. And he adds, for you know afterwards he wants to inherit the blessing, but he's rejected, for he found no place for repentance, though he sought it diligently with tears. Number five, here's the last directive tied with the warning is we, we need to stay far away from immorality and insincerity. Reject it, keep distance from it, don't get near it. Because if we're not pursuing peace, if we're not pursuing holiness, we're not watching our lives and concerned about others, it's very easy for immorality to take hold. You and I stray off course from Scripture. You know what happens, often happens? The line of morality and purity gets blurred. We, become, we make compromises. What we find entertaining becomes more depraved. Right? We're not guarding our hearts anymore. We're not keeping a healthy filter. And all of a sudden what happens is, well, filth becomes a form of our entertainment. And then we're drawn to that. It's like the junk food of the soul. and just satisfies our sinful appetite. And that's really the picture the writer's talking about. He goes to the Old Testament. He pulls out Esau as an example. Here's an Old Testament character that is, exemplifies living for the flesh, living for himself, rejecting spiritual, spiritual heritage and an inheritance, all for a moment just to feed his flesh at the loss, at the forfeiture of something much greater. He exchanged a moment of pleasure at the expense of, of purpose and legacy. And the writer basically saying is, it's a horrible exchange. And yet, how many people live like that? And so again, we're, we're warned. And the commentary, the tragic commentary that serves as this last bit of warning in verse 17 is that for Esau, he wanted God's blessings, but he didn't really want the Lord. And he regretted what he did, not because, not because of what it cost him spiritually, but what it cost him in the flesh. And so he didn't really repent. And so Esau becomes this example of those who live in sin and they love sin, and when their life goes south because of sin, they cry out for help, they cry out for forgiveness, they, they cry out for, uh, you know, for the Lord, and yet what happens is they don't find it, right? It says he, found, he didn't find it. Why? Because he wasn't sincere. 
You know, today we'd say those are alligator tears or crocodile tears. You know, that term comes from is that crocodiles tear up when they're eating. It's kind of like me at Yakiniku. So good. They're not tearing out of, you know, sadness or emotion or broken heart. They're, they're tearing because they're, they're eating. They're feeding their flesh. That, that's the idea of Esau. He's a spiritual crocodile. Sought it with tears, but he wasn't sincere. He's more concerned about, you know, feeding his flesh. He's sad that he got caught. He's not sad of what it really meant for him. And so the point really is just, to stay far away from immorality and insincerity. God wants us to grow in grace, in the knowledge of the Lord. In times we can feel weary, we're running this race, and our spiritual coach calls out and says, hey, stay strong, you got this. Strengthen yourself in the Lord, and at times help pick up somebody next to you, a word of encouragement, a prayer, a hug, Keep your path, your feet on the right path. Lifeguard yourself and stay far away from the edge of the cliff. Lord, we thank you for your word this morning and just all of the practical things that we have unpacked. God, I pray that um, in one sense we'll be able to put handles on these truths and carry them out with us, that it might change who we are and how we do. And, and Lord, to realize that when we, when we do this, there's such a freedom there. There's such a, a, a sanctified confidence in how we live and how we act. And, and so, Lord, um, help us to, to pursue these things, peace and holiness. We love you. And we commit the rest of our day and week to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. God bless you guys. I love you. I pray.